Welcome to Spotlight by Gray Area, where our mission is to build a bigger and more united house music community around the world. We are constantly discovering new and exciting artists, festivals, and event brands to share their stories and music with all of you. Let there be more house. Hey there, this is Jonah with Gray Area. In this interview, you'll hear from Elka Klein, an icon in the world of melodic house slash techno, as well as a label manager for the legendary Days Like Nights labels. Be sure to like this video and subscribe for more interviews like this. So, you know, first thing I just ask everybody is whether you have a moment, you know, from your childhood or kind of early adulthood where you feel like you really fell in love with dance music. Um, yeah, definitely. From, um, I guess from when I was in, I, I remember when I was like seven or eight years old, I was, I had my first double cassette deck, you know, and I would record songs from the radio and I was, I was mostly making mixtapes with, uh, dance music that was on the radio at that time. So that would have been Euro dance, you know, like Hathaway and, and those kind of, those kind of acts. And, was always taping that and then you know changing the order on a different tape and all of that so i, I think that's where the um, the fascination comes from that's amazing that's a young that's a young star for you <laughs> yeah it's, it's pretty much as young as i i can remember you know like before that i wasn't i don't really remember clearly being that interested in music but as soon as um those Eurodance songs came out like early 90s 90 91 um I was kind of hooked on that and that, you know, I was seven or eight at the time. So that was the start of it all, I guess. Definitely. Do you have a memory of the first time you played, whether it was like just to your friends or an actual show, you know, as a professional? Yeah, there was this, <clears throat> there was this one gig. Um, I was in high school and I guess it was, it's, it's, it's quite vague by now, but it was this, um, this friend's, birthday party that I, I i played at and they they rented all these equipment for me that i i i just knew existed but i'd never used it before you know so i, yeah. I was sort of trying to find my way on this double denim cd deck you know on the sort of on the on the spot so um from what i remember it wasn't my my greatest performance but it was it was definitely fun you know getting into it and i i, I guess i was maybe 14 or something at the time maybe 15 yeah that's funny i think a lot a lot of people i talk to have an experience like that where you just get thrown into the deep end and it's like i've never used cdjs before uh yeah. <laughs> i guess i'll give it my best shot um yeah. you know someone like yourself obviously and it's something i want to get into later but you know you just recently kind of debuted this pretty extensive live performance um but i know that you know that's not the only way you perform so I'm just curious, you know, from a fan perspective, for those who don't know you, you know, what can they expect when they come to see you live? Uh, well, when it's when it's a live show, it'll be just my own music, and I'll be I'll be performing them live at at that moment. So, so it's usually about 90 minutes, sometimes a little bit longer, um, but it, it's just my own music with my synthesizers and my laptop. And then when I do a DJ show, it's it's different. You know, I play other people's music as well. And and those shows are usually longer. I, I prefer to play, you know, three or, or more hours 
because it, it gives me more time to sort of connect with the crowd and, and really get into the music. Um, and they're, they're both different um, in their own way. And I've, I've come to like both quite a lot, you know, they're, they're, it, when, when you've done a lot of geek, DJ gigs, it's really fun to do a, a live gig and, and vice versa. Absolutely. You know, kind of on that and maybe the preference on this question depends on whether you're performing live or doing a DJ set, but between, you know, playing at a huge festival or, you know, a really large venue versus like an intimate club, you know, do you have a preference on those? And is there any that, you know, you really like to do, even though they're more occasional for you? Yeah, I've, I've always maintained my my opinion that my, my personal preference is definitely the smaller club sort of shows. And that doesn't mean necessarily a, a small amount of people, but anywhere where you still get that intimate sort of vibe. So I've had shows where there were over maybe 2,000 people, but everyone's still like right on top of you with the DJ booth being so on the same level as the dance floor and, and being, you know, just in front of those people. And that, that gives it a really big, uh, I mean, a really intimate vibe. And my, my worst sort of gig is the one where you are very lonely on a, on a really big stage with all these lights right on top of you. And I'm, I, I guess I'm just a bit of an introvert and I, I don't like to be in the spotlight that much, you know? So, and, and by now I've, you know, I've, I've become accustomed to them and I, I know how to play them, but my preference will always be those more intimate shows. Definitely. I mean, I know, you know, it's something that it's kind of, I've heard that feedback from other people and it is interesting because I think from a fan perspective, when you look at a DJ on one of these, you know, mega, mega stages at a festival or, you know, huge event, it can often feel like, oh my God, that looks amazing. I can't even imagine that feeling. But at the same time, you know, from your perspective, it's probably very difficult to connect with the crowd when you're yeah. 50 feet away from them and it's above and it's just like the tops of people's heads. Yeah. Um, you know, going all the way back, uh, kind of early 2000s and maybe even late 90s, you know, you were producing some music under different aliases. I think it was My Door and 648. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it was it was pretty like hard trance and, and definitely very different from what we associate with you now. I was yeah. just curious if you could touch on that and, you know, who was inspiring you then and kind of what, um, what made you decide yeah, to course. go away from that? Um, so when I was 18 and I, I had sort of decided I wanted to start producing music, um, I was still, I mean, back then trance was the, the biggest sound, you know, so I was definitely in, inspired by that. And um, some of my earliest um, inspirations were, 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 of course, Chesto and, and Ferry and Armin. So they, that was definitely something I liked at the time. Um, and so I, I was 18 and I got into touch with this other guy, uh, Rutger van Bostelen. And he was very much into trans as well. And he said, well, maybe we could do this, this project. And that was the, uh, the Mitre and Six for Eight that you referenced. So I, as a, someone who had never released a record and he had never done one either and um, we started making music and that took off really surprisingly quickly you know it, it got onto chesto's playlist and armin's playlist and those records were doing quite well so from releasing nothing we were all of a sudden releasing you know 10 12 records oh give me one second uh someone just called me right in front Bro. of our 
Yeah. So sh- should we do this whole bit again or? No, we can still hear you. It's all good. Ah, cool, cool. Um, no, so from um, fr- from being a duo that didn't release any records at all, we went to releasing like 10, 12 records uh, in, 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 in a year, you know? And so I went with that flow for one or two years, but um, it got kind of stale for me. Uh, there wasn't a lot of progression. I, I didn't feel like I was really doing the music that I loved because I was already getting inspired by people like Sander Kleinenberg and, and Nick Warren and, and John Dickweed and, you know, lower tempos, more progressive house. And so after three or so years, I, I put an end to that project and uh, Rutger, the other guy, continued on his own. And I sort of went my own way and I started releasing music under my own name, you know, which I'm, I'm still doing now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was really trying to dig into kind of the early years of Alka Klein releases. And yeah. it was it was interesting. I felt like, you know, from kind of 2003 to 2009, there were a lot of different sounds. Um, you know, your first couple EPs, like 45 Billion Years and Deeper Depths. Yeah. Had a little bit of that, you know, ethereal, melodic sound, but then you came back, I think it was in one of those EPs, like Knowledge Breaks, you know, it has yeah. these really, really cool breakbeat vibes on it. And then 8-Beat Era was a little faster, Luigi's Magic Mushroom. I mean, I, I obviously the name is a given, but I listened to it and I was like, this could be in a video game. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just curious, kind of in that period, when you reflect back, uh, is that music that you still love? Do you still play those tracks out? Or when you look back at that earlier phase for you, is it kind of like, you know, I've moved on from those now? A um, little bit of both, I guess. Um, if I look back on that period, I I see myself as someone that was still, you know, learning, learning to produce music and also learning his own preference. And because I was working with, you know, someone in trans on the one hand, and I was working with Nick Hogendorn, uh, a good friend of mine on the other hand, who was much more into sort of minimal and, and, and the B pitch sound. I was getting all these, these different influences and I was just releasing um, a, a lot of records. And basically I was releasing everything that I made. And, and so if I, if I look back critically now on that period, I'm thinking there's, there's definitely records that stood the, the test of time. But there's also records that sound very dated by now. And, and there's definitely a few that I, I probably wouldn't even remember if I see the name. I'd, I'd have to hear them to think like, oh, yeah, that was, that was this tune, you know? I, I totally forgot about it. So um, I'm, I'm still playing some of them for sure. Like Luigi's Magic Mushroom is, is still a favorite of mine. And I, I definitely work that into sets every now and then. Um, but a lot of music from that era for my hand that's sort of just just faded away you know definitely yeah. you have a couple you have a couple tracks over the years where you've done like a part one and a part two um yeah i'm just curious um you know when something like that comes up are you in the studio making the first version and you just feel like i have to continue this one or is it planned ahead that you want to do a two-parter no it, it's sometimes it's um I, i've done it a few times you're right it's usually when i feel there is there's more to a tune than what I did with it. So, um, for instance, in, in the order from the Nacht, I, the, the original is quite sort of progressive and quite deep. 
And then I did a part two version, which is much more focused on the, the melody and on the vocals. And it has a breakbeat. And um, it could have been maybe a remix by someone else, but I, it's this feeling that I have that I'm not completely done with a certain record. And then I sometimes name them part one and part two. And I, I think I did the same with Luigi's Magic Mushroom. The, uh, yeah. the original was was the record as is. And then for part two, we did this, um, this breakbeat also and a bit more of a string arrangement in the background to give it more of a, a melodic sort of touch. Um, so yeah, I, I like to do that when I feel there's more to a tune than, than just the one record. It's great. Um, you know, around, I think, 2010, uh, you started getting into some work kind of on the Hollywood, you know, film entertainment side yeah. of things, you know, scoring movie trailers, ads, video games. I was just curious, uh, you know, how did that come about? Like, were you approached for it or did you just decide that you wanted to jump into it? And how different is it for you working on projects like that rather than, you know, creating music for yourself? Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, it was a result of my my manager asking me early 2008, like, what do you want to do, you know, not five years from now, but maybe 10 or 15 years from now. And and one of my answers to that question was, well, I'd, I'd like to write music for, you know, maybe film or TV or something. So um, I started trying to write some some tracks that I thought would fit a movie or a, show, a series and um they started to my, my managers they they started to try and get in touch with um hollywood-based agencies you know that are sort of the link between the artist and and the movie business and it, it went surprisingly quickly actually like we got in touch with uh, pusher music who i'm still working with uh, in la and and they heard something in my sound so i i you know i got to try a couple of sort of, um, what do you call it, like pitches. And it, it was pretty soon, I guess, that the first one landed. So maybe maybe 2010 or 11 or so. And um, I, I spend a lot of time writing records for, for TV after that, you know, and, and some of them ended up in loads of movie trailers. And um, it, it's still something I, I really enjoy right now. The last couple of years have, have been a, a focus a little bit more on me as an artist and me as a uh, like trailer producer sort of um but it, it's still something i'm interested in and, and, and that i would like to you know continue working also because it's quite it's quite different from from the music that i write you know when i start to write an, an electronic dance track or something you have unlimited possibilities and you can go in any direction you know and when it's a um, when it's like a movie pitch or something it's usually like okay, we're, we're we're searching for for this and that, so it's really like boxed off, and then you've got two days to come up with it, you know. So there's quite a, a challenge to uh, writing to those kinds of um, uh, those kinds of pitches, and I've always enjoyed that. Yeah, I was just curious: is there a particular project that you worked on over the years that like really stood out to you, or was particularly fun or challenging? Whew. Um, <laughs> One of the things that I, I loved working on, and I, I have to say up front, I, I didn't make the pitch, unfortunately. I ended up second. But when they uh, renewed the uh, Star Wars franchise um, with that first movie four or five years ago or so, yeah, yeah. Um, I was also writing uh, on that for the trailer. 
and it, it almost ended up in there, uh, wow. except someone else <laughs> took the took the win. <laughs> but um, I, oh I really goodness. loved, you know, working on something like this, working working a melody that I've known as you know for as long as I can remember. You know, those those original movies were from before I was born. The first one, um, and then getting to work with that and and, and giving your own sort of uh, in, interpretation of that is is really amazing. That's amazing! Wow, I uh, I would have liked to see that. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, after Luigi's Magic Mushroom, uh, which uh, and I, it's good to hear. I'm I'm happy to hear that that's one that you still kind of play out because it it really makes sense. Because it felt like after that track, you started to get a little more. Uh, firmly into like the melodic house and techno sound that I think people yeah. now associate you with, whether it was like on the edge, 2011, the memoirs with Anjuna deep kittens yeah. of mass destruction stand up. I'm just kind of curious uh, in that time period, I'm wondering if you could just take us into the studio a little bit in, in your mind, you know, you were building a lot of complex melodies and experimenting with vocals and unique instrumental patterns. Uh, yeah. What was this, period of creation like for you and and did you feel like the live side was was also matching this development it i i think that was a period where i was still sort of searching for my sound and and even though you can definitely hear that that melodic um element as a sort of um main main thing throughout all, all the tracks in that period um i was still trying to find what sound I really wanted to, um, to, 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 you know, give to people, I guess. So a lot of records in that period were still sort of, um, going one way or going the other way. And, and for instance, that one, the, the on the edge you mentioned definitely still has a bit of those, those trans roots in them. And then some of the other records that I did in that time, I, I, I was much more inspired by, you know, Cocoon and what Sven Veit was doing. I, I did these tracks, uh, Raudauer and uh, Rampestamper, both Dutch names, by the way, which, which has always fascinated me. Um, but those were more inspired by that sort of Cocoon sound where I was yeah, just finding a whole different part of the dance floor that I, I wasn't that familiar with until that time. Um, so even though I, I guess from the outside it, it it might have looked like there was a solid plan behind it, I was just sort of going into the studio and doing all these little ideas, and then when one sort of stuck, and I thought, oh, it's just nice, you know, I, I finished it, and then I, I searched for, you know, what label would this fit with, you know? So I I was working with a lot of different labels also at the time because I I felt like I could never sort of bundle all of my sounds and and release them on one label because there was so much difference between a lot of those records at the time yeah absolutely uh you know i, I just was wanted to touch on your connection with armada uh you know you've obviously yeah. released you've released with them over the years as we discussed you used to make trance you guest spot on asot radio and yeah. your label is uh connected with armada as well yeah uh wondering if you could just tell us kind of how you first connected with them and what's the relationship like with armin and you know how does it feel to you to be working with a guy that you used to look up to it's um yeah it's it's been a really good relationship um like like you said i've been in touch with them from from very early onwards when they uh started the the company already but 
back in those days, they were starting as a trans label. And it was just around the time when I was moving deeper, you know? So I, I guess in those first 10 years, we didn't really work together that much. Um, I, I think Armada was launched in maybe 2003 or so, or, or, or two maybe, I guess. And, and that was just around the time when I was releasing my, my first records. And in 2005, I was already moving deeper, you know? So, um, so th those first 10 years, we, were, we weren't in touch that much, but... Eventually, I, I got to this point, you know, late, I guess it was around 2015, where, um, like I said before, I, I had so many different sounds and, uh, and, and, and feelings that I was looking to release at, in one label, you know, but I, I felt like I, I never really, really felt at home anywhere because I was working a lot with Tool Room at the time and they, they could do some of my more up-tempo clubby tracks. And then I was doing a couple of songs with a spinning, which which had a little bit more of a commercial edge. And I was working with um, Hernan's label, Subbeat, where we were doing deeper things, you know. And and so I, I was sort of in search for one place to do all of that, you know, maybe maybe start my own label or something. Um, and and right about at that time, my uh, my old publisher Jeroen Terehorst, he was uh, working for EMI. He made a move to go to Armada. And so I thought, hey, this is this is interesting, you know. And we 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 basically approached him and saying, like, hey, Ilk is, you know, thinking about starting his own label. Is this something that you would be interested in in, in doing this together? And uh, and they were very excited right away, you know. And that was sort of the the foundation for Days Like Nights. And so the first record that I released there was also uh, named Home. Because that was something that I was, you know, searching for for quite a long time already, and and finally, after all those years, I thought, okay, this is like place called home now, and this is where I can do all my music, you know. No, absolutely, and I mean, when you look through your catalog, it, it's so clear because, like, you start the label, and then it's like everything is out on the label for yeah. you, and and I think it's really awesome to be able to have that opportunity. I'm glad you mentioned it because I wanted to go there. Uh, for the uninitiated listening, you know, I think running and maintaining a label and, you know, having success with it and having a sound, it's a lot easier said than done. And obviously, you know, there's a whole yeah. team that works on it and it requires a lot of work. Uh, I'm just curious if you could give us a little bit of insight into kind of what went into starting it and, you know, building it out to a place that you're happy with. Yeah, it is definitely a lot of work, you know, from, um, from sort of 2006 until 2011, I used to run my own label called Outside the Box, which was really all run and handled by by me. And you know, doing doing all of that work right, you know, it, it's it's basically a full time job. And I I quickly noticed like if you want to bring this to the next level, you really can't do it alone because you need someone that is really spending time on the label, you know, being in touch with the artist, with the distribution and all that. Um, and if you're trying to do that next to your career as a, a producer and a DJ, all, all of those things are going to suffer. So um, after we made the decision to do uh, another label, Days Like Nights with, uh, with Armada, that was also a deliberate choice because they, they have the, the right people to 
you know, take care of all of those things. So they can take care of accounting, they can uh, do the artwork, they can do contracts and those kind of things. And that's also a very specific and sort of labor intensive area that I also don't, I don't want to dive too much into that, you know, because contracts is not my my experience. And it's it's much nicer if, if other people do that, you know? Um, so I, I like to focus on the creative element and signing the music and, and, and getting new artists on board. And then once we get to the um, sort of the, um, the the formal side, you know, and that's where Armada always steps in and they do the distribution and the, the handling. And yeah, it works really, really well like that, you know, to have speci- um, specific people on on specific uh, places to do uh, to do it all. Are there any artists that uh, you've you know had the opportunity to bring into the family over the last couple of years that are just particularly exciting to you? Definitely, um, especially with uh, remixes for my own album. I've um, with the last album with moments of, um, uh, oscillations is the last album with oscillations. I've um, I've really been able to to get some people on board that I, you know, look up to and that I've always enjoyed um, music by. So we got uh, Tim Green to remix one of the tracks on that album. Uh, Mano Tough remixed one of the tracks on that album. Um, you know, there's, there's so Patrice Baumel did one and it's, it's all kinds of artists that, you know, I've, some of them I've known for a long time. Some of them I've only met maybe once, but it, it always feels like an honor to have someone else, remix your your record and turn it into something else you know so um i've i've in in that way i've been able to to bring a lot of the artists that i support in my dj sets also onto the label absolutely uh you know just going back a little i just felt like i had to ask uh in 2014 you know as you mentioned with the spin-in releases and then yeah. you had this you know you had the john legend remix uh kind of two things i was curious just one you know how that came up for you. And then obviously, you know, you are more in the underground world. You know, when you get tapped to do a song like that, what's it like for you in the studio where obviously you're trying to, you know, maintain the John Legend song and he is, you know, such a, I don't know if it's pop or R&B, but, you know, such an icon, but you're trying to give it integrity while also being true to your own sound. Yeah. That can be quite a challenge, uh, to be honest. Um, and I, I, I th- if I look back on that period, like 2014, 15, I was struggling quite a bit at the time because some of the records that I did with spinning, they became pretty big hits, you know, like like Eintagam Strand here in the Netherlands uh, got into the, the top 40 and it, it even made it all the way up to number nine. And so that that opens a lot of doors but at the same time, it um, it's a, a, a little bit of a slippery slope, you know. And and, I, and I've always considered myself an underground artist. Um, but then you you know you do one record and it's it's crazy because it's 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 good and it's sort of crossover with the different genres. But you try to sort of repeat that, and the second one might be a little bit more commercial than the third one and you know and by the time you're at record five it's like you you don't really recognize what you're making anymore because you're trying to adjust all the time to what you think everyone wants to hear after after doing such a hit record you know so also with um remixes at the time i found it quite hard to balance what i enjoy as an artist 
with you know what a, a label wants for someone like John Legend, who they want to push as as well as possible, you know. So I remember specifically with this remix that I I only wanted to use the um, the refrain, and and they wanted me to use the chorus as well. So, but I thought as an underground artist, the refrain was amazing, and then the chorus was maybe not super fitting with my music. And so you you always have to strike this balance between these two things. And I it cost me quite a bit of stress at the time. And it was one of the main reasons why I, I didn't release any music in 2016, just because I really needed a year to think about, okay, what what do I want out of this? You know, do I want to continue down this road or do I want to continue down the the underground road? And um, I, I was, yeah, struggling with that for, for quite a bit in those years. Well, I appreciate that you touched on that because I did want to ask, you know, it's interesting. You have such an immense output and then obviously, you know, there's a little bit of a break in there. Uh, as you've alluded yep. to now, you know, you did just put an album out, uh, I think it was last year. And, you know, it's not your first. You've had a couple albums over the years, uh, two of them, I think, in the last yep. three or four. Uh, I'm just wondering if you could kind of, Take us inside your mind when it comes to the process of, you know, creating an album versus putting out a single and how just conceptualizing an album has changed over time for you. You know, I assume that the way you went about it last year is maybe different than you did in 2007. Yeah, in, in well, no, maybe not exactly, I guess. Like when I when I write an album, it's usually I, I don't really know I'm, I'm starting an album. I just have, you know, four or five songs that fit together nicely. And I see if I can sort of write an album around that, you know? So, and actually that, that process in 2007 for my first album was exactly like that. I had six tracks ready and I sent them to Global Underground. And I was like, hey guys, do you, do you like this? Do you think this could be an album? And they liked those first six tracks. And then I started working on the rest. And I guess now... The difference is like, well, I'll tell my my manager and the label and everyone like, okay, I'm going to start a new album. But the idea is still the same. I, I, I write a lot of music and I try to search for five or six tracks that sound really well together. And I think, okay, this could be, this could be the basis for this album. And then I, I start to fill in the gaps like, okay, it needs a little bit of this or it needs a little bit of that. Um, maybe nowadays I approach it a little bit more from a um, from an, an how do you how would you call it like maybe an artist perspective or so. So I'm I'm thinking of the sound beforehand, and and I'm already thinking about my my fifth album, for instance. And I know the kind of sounds that I want in it, and I know the the kind of tracks that I would need to write for it. So I, I have a little bit more of a, an image beforehand. But it still comes down to writing the music and then picking those five or six tracks, and and then you go like, okay, this is this is the start, and we'll we'll work from here. One of the things I, I just wanted to ask about, you know, you you post <laughs> on uh, social media a decent amount about just different equipment and you know synthesizers and keyboards and whatnot. Uh, obviously, I would assume you know some of that plays into your live sets. Some of it is in your productions. Yeah. Uh, could you just tell us about some of your favorite studio tools and synthesizers? Oh, <laughs> I'm a bit of a, a gear freak, and I have way more stuff than I need. But <laughs> it's just it's just fun twisting knobs, you know. 
Um, so one of my my main things that I use a lot is my um, my, my modular synthesizer, which is. Uh, do you want me to put it on on video as oh, well? Sure, sure. Why not? <laughs> I'll, I'll walk you around the studio a little bit. So my my modular synthesizer over here. Um, I, I built that up from the ground, and it's it's one of my favorite sort of spots for ideas. I'll just you know start a patch and and and, and think of something. And a lot of tracks have started here, like a Rubicon control. Um, yeah, too too many to mention. I've I've always I I try to get a nice sort of vibe going here, and then once that's cool, I'll I'll head into the rest of the studio. Um, then another one of my favorites is the the Moog One over here, which is my. I mean, I've I've had it literally. I was the first one, or one of the first ones in the Netherlands to have one, because I was already on the on the search for a, a modular synthesizer. Uh, sorry for a, a, a polyphonic synthesizer, and right about the time that I was searching, Moog posted that they were going to release this one, and I was like, okay. This is one plus one. I, I need it. Um, so this this was used extensively on the last album on um, uh, oscillations, and then um, this one is also. This is right in front of me. My all my guitar pedals, and um, it's only been like this for a couple of um, yeah weeks, maybe a month now. But I've I've always used my guitar pedals for lots of um, creative, uh, you know, creative effects and and freaking and um, I thought I I use them so much that I really need them right in front of me. So I, I built this little pedal board right in front of me, and I can I basically run half my audio through them. Um, so I guess those three together are sort of the basis for for any sound. And there's I mean there's lots more. You know I can just. All these drawers with with synths, but they I don't use them all the time. You know, they're the, the most important ones are definitely the ones I, I just mentioned. That's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. I always like to ask when whenever we're doing an interview where the artist is in the studio, it's like I know it's such a sacred place for you guys, and yeah. you know you've obviously built this out over the years. And I mean to have to be one of the first people in the country with the Moog, that's that's pretty crazy. I mean, that's yeah. now it feels like such an industry standard tool. Um, you know, one, one of the things that uh, you did recently, and I'm I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but uh, Circle or Circle? Um, yes, Circle. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good. I've always been curious. Some people have like given me weird pronunciations, but anyways. You know, you played this set for them and, and, you know, I think they've become one of the hottest commodities in our industry recently. It feels like, you yeah. know, they've kind of cemented themselves as tastemakers. And I think from an artist perspective, it's a pretty awesome sign off when they tap you to produce a set. Uh, and also it's, you know, a very unique opportunity for artists to test out a live version of their set as you did. Um, yeah. I'm wondering if you could just kind of tell us about the whole experience, you know, what what it means to be part of that family now and how, how it felt performing your music in such an awe-inspiring location um, and yeah. the decision to to premiere that live set for them. Well, um, it, it was a, a very overwhelming experience, you know. I We've been in touch with um, Circle for, for a while, I, I guess for a few years, just seeing like if because it it's always nice if you do something like circle to base it around something 
new, you know. So in, in my case, that was the, the the latest album, Oscillations, was sort of the trigger that that made it happen. Happen, and um, I, I'd already played um, quite a few live shows uh, with with the setup um, in 2018 and 19. Um, but of course, you know, then then the whole COVID thing happened, and and so when I played the the, the Circle show in March, I think it was at least a year and a half since I had played uh, a live show anywhere, you know? So also for me, it was quite a challenge. I, I think I spent um, the, the, the four weeks leading up to the, uh, the, the, the actual show, I spent those four weeks like playing the show here at home at least three times a day, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes more um, because I really wanted to be well rehearsed and, and circle compared to, all the other um, uh, live streams out there is is the only one that is actually live live. So it, it gets recorded and 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 broadcasted on Facebook at exactly the same time that you're playing the show. So any mistake will be in there until the end of time. You know, so you don't want you don't want to fuck up. And so there's a lot of pressure to do it to do it right. You know, and so I spent lots of time rehearsing for that. And um, it was so interesting because you. You know, you it, coming out of the um, how do you call it, like the COVID winter, I had not seen uh, a crowd in front of me for half a year. You know, and then all of a sudden, you're in in France with uh, with a huge team. You know, like ten plus people working on this show. Um, that's that's that, and you start building up in the morning, and then the, the show is uh, later in the afternoon. And yeah, it was it was just an overwhelming experience. And, and to be really honest. I don't think I enjoyed the moment that much. I, I only enjoyed when it was finished and when everything went well, because I was way too focused to sort of even look around and, and see my surroundings. You know, that that all came later when I when I finally finished and everything went well. <laughs> it makes sense. Uh, yeah, it's, it yeah. definitely is a high pressure set, and uh, visually, from a viewer perspective, it was absolutely stunning. Um, just a follow-up, the Mont Saint Michel single that you put out was that was that planned in advance to release with them, or was that kind of born out of the live set? I know that's that's something that they do um, since I, I guess since a year or so, maybe a little bit longer. They try to release one a song from every live set that they do. You know, so uh, Sebastian Leger released one, and I released one, and um, uh, Who Made Who released one, and so now they're trying to do that with every artist. And so I, I definitely went into the studio and I started writing that track, I, I guess, maybe January or February and playing it at the uh, Mont Saint-Michel was also the, the, the first time for me, you know, trying this song anywhere. Uh, so I, I did write that specifically for that performance. That's great. Well, as we're finishing up here, the last, the last thing I just want to ask you about, obviously, you know, coming off the circle set and your album, I mean, you've had such an accomplished career and, you know, we're finally returning to live shows pretty soon for someone yeah. like yourself who, you know, <clears throat> is so established and has accomplished so much in your career. What is kind of the next piece for you or what is it that, you know, you want to accomplish in the next couple of years, whether it's a visual aid on your live set or it's more focus on scoring films or another album, just curious kind of what the future holds. Um, I, I've got two, maybe three things that, that really have my, my focus right now. Like I want to do a fifth album and I, 
I really want to play more guitar on that. Like I've, I only started playing guitar maybe three years ago. I don't feel comfortable enough on stage yet, but in the studio, I'm getting up to the level where I'm, I'm comfortable recording my own guitars, you know? So I've, I've really taken over the last couple of years, taken an interest into a lot of the, uh, not just indie dance, but also the, the indie rock scene. And um, I, I think my next album will have a bit more crossover towards that, that um, you know, that sound. Um, so that's, that's one thing I really want to focus on. Um, I want to build the live show more. And that, I guess that's also an extension of that, because if I do an album with low, you know, more live instruments and more guitar, that's also going to translate well to the live show. So I, I guess that is sort of step two. I bring the live show more to more places around the world also, because I've mostly done it in, in Europe now. Um, and I also want to continue the, um, you know, my, my film and, and TV ventures, although it, it's often difficult to, um, to really divide your time between all of those because you can only do so many things really well, you know? So I'm, I'm sort of hoping to, how do you say, like if, if I write an album that has a little bit more of a crossover sound, it might also appeal to the film industry. So we'll, we'll see if that actually works out, but uh, that's, the, that's the way I envision it right now. Awesome. Well, the last question I have for you is just, if there are any up and coming artists that you've been listening to that uh, you just want to give a quick shout out to. Definitely. Um, Buddha Kid is one of them. Uh, he, he played for us at a Days Like Nights last year and I play a lot of his music. And, um, you know, he's, he's definitely uh, someone to watch out for. A very talented and um, doing a lot of good music at the moment. And also Fat Sushi. Uh, we've been releasing some of their stuff on the label. And we have one track coming up uh, called Alone with Allies for Everyone. And that's been one of my my biggest tracks this whole COVID period, like everywhere I play it, it just goes off. So um, we're, we're looking into doing more music with them as well. And I, I can see really good things for them. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate you taking the time today. This was awesome. Uh, you know, I think we'll probably publish this sometime next week or the week after. We'll obviously be sure, in touch. Cool. And uh, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thank you. And and again, apologies for being late. It was a, no, no problem. <laughs> a little bit of a mix-up, but... No problem at all. All right, okay. well, you have a good one, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, you it. too, man. Thank you.